1: It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. In this weekend's podcast, Glenn talks about how we can reform government problems and discusses how accountability is possibly coming soon for the attempted election crimes in Georgia and for the attack on our Capitol on January 6th. First, what did we learn from the comments made by the special grand jury forewoman as she spoke to various
2: reporters? Here's Glenn. Welcome back to our Justice Matters weekend chat. If you've been listening to my weekend episodes, you know that each Saturday we pull a chair up to the kitchen table and we talk about something that we know is broken in our federal government and how we can work to fix it. We talk about reform and reform not in some, you know, Pollyanna theoretical pie-in-the-sky sense, you know, reform that can never happen, will never happen. We try to take on fixes that are achievable, that are doable, that are realistic. Well, today I want to talk with you not specifically about reforming something in our federal government, but I want to talk about refocusing something about our federal government. So what might refocusing involve? Well, I want to talk about the need to fight, to take off the gloves, to lean forward, to mix it up, especially being willing to fight in court. And here's the important part not just defensively, but offensively. You know, we can't forever be on defense. For example, we talked a little bit last week about how we can no longer afford to sit back and watch the Fox Entertainment Network hosts and anchors lie about, you know, things like our sacred right to vote being stolen, about our American elections being rigged. By that speech, that false speech that is saturating our airwaves, you know, Fox is not just sowing discontent. They are inspiring and even inciting violence. And we sit back and we say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, First Amendment, Brandenburg test, the standard by which dangerous speech is judged, constitutional or unconstitutional, there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to let it go on, running rampant, unchecked, until violence erupts and then we'll swoop in and clean things up. You know, after the violence erupts as a result of Fox Entertainment's dangerous lies. Friends, that's an example of playing defense. And it's playing defense to the extreme detriment of the American people. So, friends, today when we get to that part of our kitchen table chat, after we do a quick legal recap of some of the most important legal developments Of the week I want to use as an example of the need to go on offense of the need to refocus something that happened involving the Supreme Court which I think perfectly illustrates the danger of always playing defense friends no game is ever won if you're always playing defense so friends part two of our discussion today will be less about reforming government and more about refocusing government. You know, refocusing on how we can do better moving forward. Because friends, we have to do better moving forward. Given where we've been over the last four, five, six years, we have to do better. So let's turn to the legal recap. And I wanna focus on really two stories, two related stories because I think these are stories of enduring consequence and they both involve the march toward accountability and yes I know it's a slow march there are lots of detours and false starts you know sometimes it feels like we're moving in reverse but in recent weeks and months we have been making progress and that's not just wishful thinking let's talk about The one-two punch of Fawny Willis and Jack Smith. Because these two justice warriors, you know Fulton County District Attorney down there in Georgia, Fawny Willis and Special Counsel Jack Smith at the Department of Justice. These two justice warriors represent the best of what prosecutors have to offer in my opinion. And frankly they, they are at this moment our best hope for accountability. And yes, I still believe accountability is coming. So friends, let's start down in Georgia with District Attorney Fawny Willis's investigation of Donald Trump and his criminal associates and specifically what we learned from the forewoman of the special grand jury that investigated Donald Trump's Georgia State election crimes, a young woman named Emily Kors. So let's start with the backstory, even though we're all familiar with it by now. Down in Georgia, you have this really unusual dual grand jury system, where one grand jury has the power to hear from compliant witnesses, witnesses who are willing to appear without a subpoena, and that regular grand jury has the ability to indict people, but then if you have difficult witnesses, combative witnesses, reluctant witnesses, and you need to use the power of the subpoena to compel them, to force them to testify, you need to impanel a special grand jury and they can issue subpoenas, they can compel people to testify, but the special grand jury cannot issue indictments. What they do is at the end of their term, they issue a report, they make recommendations about Who should be indicted and then those recommendations are carried back by the district attorney to the regular grand jury and that's the grand jury with the power and the authority to indict people so as I'm sure you all know the special grand jury completed its work issued a report there were three fairly important findings in that report that were revealed but you'll probably recall only a little bit of that report was revealed. It was highly redacted, page after page after page of redactions, but we learned three important things, and then the forewoman, Emily Kors, started granting interviews, which everybody thought was pretty darn strange, unusual, unorthodox. We're going to talk about that as well in a minute, but boy, when she did, we learned a whole bunch more about what was going on in that special grand jury that was investigating Donald Trump's crimes but the three things that we learned from the release of the redacted report one the grand jury concluded unanimously there was no fraud in the Georgia presidential election nothing undermining Joe Biden's win nothing supporting Donald Trump's claims of a fixed or fraudulent or rigged election. That was an important finding by the grand jury. Two, the grand jury concluded that one or more witnesses lied to them. You know, we can all speculate as to who they were. We don't know for certain, but we'll know soon enough. You know, there's some sense that Mark Meadows may be one of those guys. And the grand jury, after saying they believed one or more witnesses lied, urged D.A. Willis, to indict the liars, hold them accountable. And three, we learned from the highly redacted report that it looked like there were multiple people that the special grand jury recommended should be indicted. But that was pretty much all we learned. But not long after that report was released, we met Emily Kors, 30-year-old young woman who was the forewoman, Of the special grand jury and she started giving media interviews. Now I will say friends, I was a federal prosecutor for 30 years and federal grand juries and federal grand jurors aren't allowed to give interviews after they've completed their work. However, in Georgia they can and that is really important. It's really important for the information she provided in those media interviews. It's really important to know that what she did was absolutely appropriate and lawful, and we know that is the case because the presiding judge, Judge McBurney, who has supervisory authority over the grand jury in Georgia, told us it was appropriate and lawful. And did not violate the rules that he set for the grand jury or the rules that the Georgia law sets for the grand jury. That's an important backdrop against which to discuss what we learned from Emily Coors. So friends what did we learn from the grand jury forewoman Emily Coors? Well we learned that the list of people that they recommended for indictments the list of people they believe there was ample evidence to indict is quote not a short list more than a dozen people so hold on tight friends because indictments are coming when she was asked by a reporter whether the grand jury recommended Donald Trump be indicted she wouldn't answer that question interestingly she probably could have without violating Georgia state law or any of the rules set by Judge McBurney for what the grand jurors could or couldn't say, but she declined to answer. But what she did say was, well, she said, we started with the phone call. We focused on, you know, that call between Donald Trump and former Secretary of State for Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner was the message being sent. She said, yeah, we started with that phone call. And she said, you know, I'm not gonna answer the question about who we recommended um, for indictments, but let's just say you're not gonna be shocked. It's not rocket science. I was thrilled to hear that, friends, because the only thing that would shock me is if the Georgia grand jury didn't recommend Donald Trump be indicted. And then there was this great exchange between a reporter and Ms. Kors. A reporter said, did you see that Donald Trump said in a post that your report, the grand jury report, totally exonerated him? And you could see the shock come over Ms. Kors and she said, did he really say that? Oh, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. I love it. Friends, you really don't have to read between the lines. Donald Trump said that Emily Korr's report as forewoman of the grand jury totally exonerates him, and she, in everything she said and in the way she looked when she first learned that Trump claimed their report exonerated him, it tells you everything you need to know. Donald Trump is recommended for indictment you know what, you can probably bet the farm on it. And then the next step is Fonnie Willis asking the regular grand jury to implement those recommendations and indict Donald Trump. And, you know, since Ms. Coors gave these interviews, my goodness, all of the Trump supporters and lackeys and, and sycophants and acolytes are yelling and screaming, oh my goodness, this could undermine the whole prosecution of Donald Trump in Georgia because a grand jury was speaking about what went on in the grand jury, no, wrong, incorrect, intentionally false, there's no legal significance or consequence to the future indictment of Donald Trump and others down in Georgia of the fact that Ms. Coors did precisely what she was allowed to do. And Don't take my word for the fact that Ms. Kors was allowed to do precisely what she did. Take it from Judge McBurney. Because Judge McBurney gave an interview to the Atlanta Journal Constitution and he addressed this very issue. In an article in the Atlanta Journal Constitution under the heading McBurney Weighs In. That article reads, in part, in a Wednesday interview, McBurney said he met with the special grand jurors at the end of their service to explain what they may legally discuss with anyone, not just the news media. And here's what Judge McBurney said. They, the jurors, cannot discuss their deliberations. So the question becomes, what are deliberations? And I explained to the grand jurors That would be the discussions they had amongst themselves when it was just the grand jurors in the room. When they were discussing, what do we do with what we've learned, said Judge McBurney. But if if an assistant DA or a witness is in the grand jury room, they, the grand jurors, can talk about what happened, the judge said. That's not deliberations, that's presentation. And the grand jurors are not prohibited from talking about that, nor are they prohibited from talking about the fruit of their deliberations, which would be the final report. So friends, the bottom line is don't listen to the folks who are peddling disinformation about how the fact that a grand juror has talked about what happened in the grand jury somehow impacts or has any legal consequence to the future prosecution of Donald Trump and his criminal associates. It doesn't. She was doing what she was permitted to do. And I'll tell you, it kind of sickens me, friends. It it kind of sickens me when I see the people who are like mocking and making fun of Emily Kors. You know, yes, she's a little quirky. She has an unusual way of communicating. She's a 30-year-old young woman who put her life on hold for eight months to do her civic duty, to sit in a grand jury day after day after day. And she thoughtfully went through the evidence and together with her fellow grand jurors returned a report that recommended that people be held accountable for their crimes in connection with trying to overturn the results. Of a presidential election. I don't want to hear people making fun of her or anybody else for the people they are or how they communicate or the fact that you know maybe they're a little quirky. We're all a little quirky every last one of us in our own way. We're all a little quirky and, and I think it's despicable that the Trump trolls and acolytes and spokespeople come out and mock and make fun of her. That's, that's, that's ugly. But it's precisely the kind of ugliness we've come to expect from Trump and company.
1: Coming up next, Special Counsel Jack Smith is full steam ahead with the probe into the beginnings of the January 6th insurrection. This is Justice Matters. Hi, Beowulf here with Justice Matters, and I'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions I've made recently, getting Factor meals. Eating is so much easier for me with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved nutritious and delicious so what are you waiting for get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals head over to factormeals.com/glen50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off that's code glen50 at factormeals.com/glen50 to get 50% off remember go to factormeals.com/ GLENN50 and use code GLENN50 to get 50% off today.
0: Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder.
1: The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder
0: from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills.
1: After only a few months on the job, Special Counsel Jack Smith has gone on the offensive in his investigation of Donald Trump by issuing subpoenas to multiple high-level people in his circle, including former Vice President Mike Pence. Now he's telling the judge to not allow Pence to invoke bogus privileges.
2: Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's turn to the second part of the legal recap, and that is Special Counsel Jack Smith. Because the week started with Jack Smith subpoenaing Ivanka Trump to testify about daddy's crimes before the federal grand jury, and Jared Kushner to testify about his father-in-law's crimes. And the week ended with Jack Smith fighting a legal battle in court, albeit behind closed doors, this was not a public hearing, fighting a battle in court preemptively, proactively, offensively regarding... Mike Pence's attempt to duck and dodge a subpoena. Mike Pence's decision to invoke bogus privileges to try to keep from having to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump. It is so important, friends, to know that Jack Smith decided to fight these battles offensively, preemptively. So let me set up how this usually plays out and then we'll talk about why the decisions Special Counsel Jack Smith are making are so telling and so necessary. First of all, when a witness is subpoenaed to the grand jury and wants to invoke any number of privileges, it can be executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, your Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, or it can be speech or debate privilege, which is reserved for legislators, members of Congress, but Mike Pence is, you know, trying to throw that in the mix as well. We'll be talking more about the merits or lack thereof in the future, but usually how this plays out is a subpoena is served, the witness appears before the grand jury, is asked every single question. The prosecutors wanna ask the witness. It can go on for hours and hours and hours, and the witness invokes whatever the appropriate privilege is, I use the word appropriate very loosely here because some will throw bogus privileges into the mix, but to each question they will assert a particular privilege if you know they think one applies and then all of that gets packaged up and presented to the chief judge who has supervisory authority over the grand jury and it gets litigated and that's a process that ordinarily takes a very long time because you know, briefs have to be written and oral arguments have to be set and conducted and the judge has to decide and this can go on for a very long time. But that's the ordinary process by which prosecutors challenge or test privileges that witnesses invoke in the grand jury. Jack Smith said, oh no, not this time. On February 9th, Jack Smith served a grand jury subpoena on a former vice president of the United States, and reportedly he did it without even bothering to consult Merrick Garland, as was appropriate, but he could have consulted him. Jack Smith is taking the justice ball and running with it, and then having subpoenaed Pence on February 9th, just two weeks later, Jack Smith said, no, 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 I'm not going to wait for Mike Pence to finally come into the grand jury, go through the dog and pony show of him invoking all sorts of bogus privileges and then go on the sort of long process to package them up and brief them and argue them and litigate them. He said, no, 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 not this time. I know he's gonna assert bogus privileges. I'm going on offense. I'm filing motions with the court to have the judge say he ain't got no privileges, now get in there and testify. That's not the way prosecutors ordinarily litigate privileges, friends, but that's the way Jack Smith is doing it. So think about it. In very short order, Jack Smith subpoenaed not only a vice president, former vice president of the United States, not only a former chief of staff to the president of the United States, Mark Meadows, not only a president's daughter, a president's son-in-law, a president's White House counsel, a president's deputy White House counsel, the president's criminal defense attorneys, which take it from me, is highly unusual. We don't ordinarily subpoena the defense attorneys who are representing the target of a grand jury criminal investigation. The person we're intending to indict, we don't subpoena their attorneys. Why? Because the attorney's ordinarily have a robust attorney-client privilege, so we couldn't compel them to testify. Jack Smith said, oh, no, no, not this time, because there is fraud afoot between the client, Donald Trump, and the attorneys, and the attorneys will be testifying, and I will pierce the attorney-client privilege by using what's called the crime fraud exception. Please, friends, hear this. I've dealt with a lot of federal prosecutors in my lifetime. DOJ was my professional home for nearly a quarter of a century. Um, I supervised lots of federal prosecutors. I was supervised by lots of federal prosecutors, my friends, my former colleagues. This is not the way federal prosecutors ordinarily operate. They are generally a very slow, thoughtful, academic, circumspect bunch, particularly, I'm sorry to say, when it comes to investigating the rich, the powerful, the influential, the connected, the political. This is not the way Jack Smith is running his investigation. You know, you'll excuse me for using a football analogy. My pop was a high school football coach, so that is the environment in which I grew up and I often lapse into football analogies, but you know, basically Jack Smith is on offense. Federal prosecutors are so often on defense. As but one example, they're on defense when they litigate these privileges. No, Jack Smith is not only on offense, he's basically running a two-minute offense. And if you're not a football fan, a two-minute offense means you have only two minutes left in the game, and you don't even go back to the huddle and talk about the next play. You just run play after play after play after play, one after another. You don't stop, you don't give the defense time to think or time to breathe, you just go, go, go. That's the two minute offense. That's what Jack Smith is running, not just appears to be running, that's what he is running in a a very real sense. And and friends, Jack Smith was only appointed on November 18th, three months ago. And it's remarkable what he has, has done, what he has accomplished, and frankly, we only know a fraction of what he's done in the grand jury. If we know about 10 or a dozen witnesses that he's put in the grand jury, I can almost guarantee you he's put in four, five, six times more than the witnesses we know. So what he's accomplished in three months running this two-minute offense, you know, before he was appointed on November, 18th, it felt like the Department of Justice couldn't even get out of the locker room, hadn't even stepped on the field, hadn't even run the first play against the suits of the insurrection, the hierarchy, the command structure, Trump and all his you know, dirty lawyers and his nefarious acolytes like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. DOJ hadn't even gotten out of the locker room. Jack Smith is already running the two-minute offense. That's important, that's unusual, and that is why I maintain that the combination of Jack Smith at DOJ and Fawny Willis in Georgia, it really does feel like the one-two punch of justice. And friends, It leaves me feeling like justice may just be out there on the horizon.
1: Coming up next, can we find ways to punish or curtail an action by the legislative branch when they refuse to do what the Constitution requires of them? This is Justice Matters. When the House or Senate defies the Constitution and ignores or postpones important legislative assignments, what can we do about it? Here's Glenn.
2: Okay, moving on from the legal recap, let's talk about, as I say, not necessarily reforming something in our government that's broken, but refocusing, tweaking the governmental game plan. You know, there are times when the government has to play defense, right? for example, someone sues the federal government for an alleged violation of their rights, okay, the government's got to play defense. They are quite literally defending against a lawsuit. But there are times when the government, specifically the executive branch, needs to go on offense. But they don't. They ponder, they ruminate, they hesitate, they equivocate and they find reasons to decline to act and it ends up hurting the American people you know and sometimes hurting our very democracy. Let's turn to an example and the example I want to use as the jumping-off point for this discussion why we need to refocus, why the executive branch in particular needs to play offense far more than it does I want to use the example, the debacle, the stone-cold constitutional debacle of Mitch McConnell's Senate unconstitutionally blocking Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court and how our executive branch responded or failed to respond. Now first friends, let me say, I am loath to second-guess what a former president did when I know that president had the best interests of the American people at heart and that is what I believe of President Barack Obama. I'm a great admirer of President Obama so you'll excuse me if this sounds like Monday morning quarterbacking but I believe we can always do things better we can always learn from the past and I have always maintained that The action that followed Mitch McConnell's violation of the Constitution, his refusal to set a confirmation hearing on Merrick Garland's nomination, his refusal to exercise the Senate's prerogative to provide advice and consent on the nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court had to be addressed by the executive branch, and it wasn't. First of all, let's look at the Constitution and what it says about a president's authority to appoint Supreme Court justices and the Senate's authority, its opportunity to provide advice and consent on that nomination. The constitutional provision boiled down to its essence says the following, that the president shall nominate and By and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. It ain't complicated, friends. The president has the authority to nominate and appoint Supreme Court justices and the Senate has the authority, the opportunity to provide advice and consent on that nomination. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You know what the Senate? does not have the right to do what Mitch McConnell did. Mitch McConnell said to the President of the United States, I don't care who you nominate to the Supreme Court, I will not provide advice and consent. I will not set a confirmation hearing to even begin the advice and consent process. And how did the executive branch respond? Well, it didn't go on the offensive, it failed to respond. And because the executive branch failed to respond, we ultimately saw a Supreme Court revoke women's constitutional privacy rights. If that's not a searing example of how governmental inaction works to the detriment of the American people, I don't know what is. I mean, friends, just think about what Mitch McConnell or any other nefarious Senate majority leader could do. He could say, Mr. President, for your four-year term, I will never set an advice and consent hearing. I will never set a confirmation hearing, therefore you will appoint no Supreme Court justices during your four-year term and if you're re-elected during your eight-year term and Mitch McConnell got away with it for nearly a full year Merrick Garland was nominated and Mitch McConnell refused to even set a confirmation hearing and the executive branch failed to act failed to go on the offensive Okay, so what was the executive branch to do, right? We can't just identify problems. We need to try to come up with solutions. Well, in my opinion, here's what the executive branch should have done. The executive branch should have told the legislative branch. President Obama should have told Mitch McConnell, you have the opportunity pursuant to the Constitution to provide advice and consent, but you do not have the opportunity to withhold advice and consent. You do not have the opportunity to use your constitutional prerogative to provide advice and consent as a permanent block to my nominations to the Supreme Court. That's not the way it works, Mitch. So here's what we're going to do. I will give you 30 days to set and conduct a confirmation hearing so you can exercise your constitutional opportunity to provide advice and consent on my nomination. And if you refuse to do so, as you have been refusing for the better part of a year, I will conclude that you have waived the Senate's opportunity to provide advice and consent, and I will direct Merrick Garland to take his rightful place on the Supreme Court bench. And you know what Mitch McConnell would have done, friends? He would have done one of two things. He probably would have just set a confirmation hearing. Why? Because President Obama would have called his unconstitutional bluff or Mitch McConnell would have run to the courts. He would have filed suit, claiming that what President Obama just proposed, just declared he would do, is unconstitutional. And then you know what, friends? Mitch McConnell would have had the challenge of proving to the judges that he, Mitch McConnell, gets to rewrite the Constitution all by himself. He gets to permanently withhold advice and consent, using it as a weapon, refusing to set a hearing, and thereby permanently depriving a president of appointing judges to the Supreme Court. And you know who would have lost that battle in court? Mitch McConnell. Coming
1: up, is it possible to refocus how the government operates when it comes to the Supreme Court? This is Justice Matters. After many issues with members of the Supreme Court being false in their testimony during confirmation hearings and not recusing themselves when they should, is there a way to hold them accountable? Here's
2: Glenn. Okay, friends. So if you find this discussion at all persuasive, the need for the federal government, the executive branch, to go on offense rather than always playing defense or failing to act at all, If you find it at all convincing, that this is an important reason to refocus how the federal government does business, let's talk about how might this approach, this refocusing apply to other issues, to other circumstances, particularly involving judges and Supreme Court justices. Well, we know that several judges lied In their confirmation hearings in their determination to get confirmed so they could join the Supreme Court and revoke women's constitutional privacy rights, their rights to bodily autonomy, their rights to make their own reproductive decisions. A right that had been in place as the court had interpreted the Constitution for 50 years. How about we go on offense and investigate those lies. Because when you watch the confirmation testimony of the Alitos and the Kavanaughs of the world, they lied. I mean, they used purdy words, and they danced around, and they misdirected, but the signal that they sent was a lie. And we learned recently that some of those same judges who wanted to become Supreme Court justices, lied to senators behind closed doors in their pre-confirmation testimony meetings. You know, they sent the signal during their testimony that, oh, Roe versus Wade? A woman's constitutional privacy rights? Roe versus Wade has nothing to worry about from me it settled precedent, It's starry decisis, it's been reaffirmed a number of times, it's worthy of respect, and then when they got on the Supreme Court bench, they figuratively walked that precedent, Roe versus Wade, deep into the woods and shot it dead, as they intended to do from day one, and that puts the lie to their confirmation hearing testimony. How about we investigate those lies? Now, the investigation, in my opinion, should take the form of an impeachment inquiry. That doesn't mean that articles of impeachment will be drafted up after a full thorough investigation is conducted. And if articles of impeachment are drafted up, it doesn't mean they will pass in the House. And if they do pass in the House, it doesn't mean that these justices will be convicted at a Senate trial on those articles of impeachment. But can we please go on offense and investigate the lies of these judges who wanted to become justices so they could revoke Women's constitutional privacy rights, the exact opposite of what they told us all during their confirmation hearings. And they're getting ready to revoke more of the constitutional rights of Americans. We know this. They've signaled this. In another area, how about we get proactive? We go on offense regarding Justice Clarence Thomas's ethical violations his refusal to remove himself from a case, recuse himself from a case in which he had a direct conflict involving his wife Ginny's work as an insurrectionist. How about we go on offense and we investigate and we do something about it? How about we investigate 4,500 citizen tips that were provided about Brett Kavanaugh's unsuitability to serve as a Supreme Court Justice. How about we go on offense somewhere, somehow, on some of these issues? Friends, these are issues that couldn't be more important because they impact the constitutional rights of the American people. How about we refocus? We go on offense, you know, not in an unlawful way, an improper way, an unethical way, an immoral way, but in a way and for reasons that are motivated by a desire to protect the American people, their rights, and our democracy. I don't know, it feels to me like some refocusing is in order. And friends, let me finish with this. There is one concern that I hear frequently when I talk about how you know we have to go on offense particularly When it comes to judges and Supreme Court justices, there are some people who will say, no, 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 that's like the third rail of politics. You can't touch it. You know, people say, well, if the Democrats try to go on offense, they try to hold corrupt and criminal judges and Supreme Court justices accountable, well, then the other side will do it. But, you know, they'll do it nefariously. They'll abuse it. Well, you know what, friends? The fact that the other side in the future may do something nefariously or may abuse what we're trying to do properly and lawfully and honestly and ethically is no reason for us to decline to do the right thing for the right reason right now. If the other side chooses to do it nefariously in the future we will fight them and we will win. But the fact that they may do it in the future for the wrong reasons does not mean we should decline to do it for the right reasons right now. Because justice matters. Friends, thank you for hanging out with me at the kitchen table today. If you wanna find me on other platforms, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you can find me at Glenn Kirshner2. As I say, someday I hope to graduate the Glenn Kirschhner one. But as of right now, you can find me at Glenn Kirschner2. If you're interested in learning more about some of these issues or joining Team Justice proper, you can come on over to Patreon.com. You can join us there. You can sign up to become a patron. And if you do, I will send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And over on Patreon, I post all sorts of behind the scenes stuff so you can see more uh, regarding how we operate here at Justice Matters. It's an all-volunteer outfit. We're up and running seven days a week, posting a legal analysis video every day. And if you wanna dial up these videos, just go to YouTube, and it's Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner and of course this audio podcast which posts three times a week Tuesdays and Thursdays our legal recap videos and then of course our weekend kitchen table chat is both a legal recap video at the beginning and then we tackle some issue of government reform of government refocus of government repurposing and We have lots of other reform topics to take on in the future, things like criminal justice reform, court reform, more generally police reform and and lots of others. So thank you for spending some time with me today and I look forward to seeing you all again soon.